Okay. Well, hey, if we're honest, we all love stories. Even you tough guys out there, uh, you love a good story, right? And I don't mean like a fairy tale story. I don't mean like uh, it doesn't have to be romantic, Sleeping Beauty or whatever. We love stories. We love to feel a part of something bigger than ourselves, right? Most people, I would say. This isn't a story, but think about being on top of a mountain, Or if you've been to the Grand Canyon, standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon and looking down. Or you're on top of the the mountain, you're on top of the Rockies, and you're standing and you're just overlooking everything. And you're like, oh, nobody is up there going, I'm awesome. Nobody is overlooking the Grand Canyon going, man, my GPA is incredible. (laughs) Nobody is overlooking the Grand Canyon or the valley on, underneath uh, one of the mountains, and you're saying, man, man, I have a really nice pair of jeans on right now. Like, look at me. I'm so awesome. Nobody's doing that. You feel significant, but why do you feel significant? Because you feel so insignificant, because of everything that you're looking at and everything around you. And that's certainly how I felt when I've either been on the side of a mountain or on the rim of the Grand Canyon. You overlook it and you say, I'm a part of something bigger here. This is not about me. And maybe you've never been to a mountain or you've never been on the rim of the Grand Canyon. But this happens in other ways too, right? When you're reading a great book or you're, you're watching a great movie or you're at a football game, whether there's 5,000 people or 105,000 people, you feel this. Take a movie, for example. You know why movies are so great? Because for two hours you actually forget that you exist and have a life, don't you? Like, don't you get drawn in? Where You're with the person, and, and if you're like me, and maybe you're like my wife, who's very quiet, and I'm like, I talk the whole time, and I'm like, do you see, how could, he, how could that happen? How could that? And my dad would always remind me growing up, it, it's a movie. It wouldn't be a movie if that didn't happen. And so I am just like drawn in. And when we're at a movie, when it's a really good movie, or if you're a reader and you're reading a great book, You forget about everything in your life while you're reading that book or while you're watching that movie or that that TV show or that miniseries or whatever it is. You're drawn in. That's what good stories do. They remind us that this is not about me. This is about something much bigger than me. And I'm drawn in. And I find real significance in that. I actually don't feel like less of a person. I don't feel like less of me. I feel like more of me because it's not about me. I understand that I don't want my life to shrink to the size of my life. Did you get that? I don't want my life to shrink to the size of my life because if I'm honest, my life is not that impressive. Nobody's is. And that's what good stories do. They remind us of these things. When you're watching a movie or you're reading a story or you're in a you're watching a, a game or something, what are you doing? You're rooting for the hero, right? And then you're hoping for a happy ending. Even you tough guys, you're wishing for a happy ending, right? You're hoping the guy gets the girl. You're hoping the hero beats the villain. And when, the, when it happens at the end, what do you do? You walk out of the theater or you close the book and you say, man, I wish that were true. I wish that were true. If you've seen the Chronicles of Narnia, You get goosebumps at the end because you're like, I wish that was true. And then there's some of you who, you know, right now you're saying, well, 
I just walk, it's just a movie, man. Like, it's just a story. It's not real. But aren't you real? Like, aren't those feelings real? Doesn't the fact that those feelings exist kind of point you into a direction to say, actually, there, there, is, there must be something like that out there for me. There, there must be some kind of a Chronicles of Narnia moment or, or a moment when, when Nebraska actually wins a football game and doesn't get blown out, right? There are those moments out there where, where we experience victory and the hero does what the hero is meant to do or the story turns out the way it was meant to turn out. Those longings are real, even if the book or the movie is not real. The reason we love stories, actually the reason we need stories, is because God is writing a story in history. And every story, every single one, points to or points away from the true story. If a story does not point to God's story, what is it? It's a lie. It's a false story. There's lots of stories like this. We, we live, some of you in here are living that story. You're denying the real story. I don't know if you remember that video that Brad showed at the end of Oasis last week, but the narrator in the, in the movie was saying, or in the, in the short video was saying, humans have chosen to write their own stories. And that's really what characterizes the human race. We try to live our own story. We don't try to live and love God's story. And so tonight, what I'm going to introduce to you in very quick fashion is the beginning of God's story, the Old Testament. And next week, Brad will get to the New Testament. And I have have the very hard task of of doing two-thirds of your Bible in, in 25 minutes I want to give you the big idea for this, and and you might be thinking, well, why does this matter? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. Here's the big idea that you need to know. The Old Testament begins the unfolding story of God's redemption in the world. That's pretty simple. That's it. Now you're thinking, okay, like, another talk about the Bible. I have serious problems, and some of you do. Like, everybody in here has some serious issues, and I'll talk about them at the end. But maybe, maybe you are thinking about suicide. Maybe a friend is thinking about suicide. Maybe your parents keep arguing, and it drives you insane. Maybe a family member's giving up on you. Maybe you just can't cut it in school, and you're wondering if this education thing is for you. Maybe you really need to work, and you can't find a job as a high school student. There's lots of things that could be causing you problems in your life. So why does this matter? It matters, and I think it's the next slide. True joy and purpose are found when you embrace your role in God's story. And these are on your little cards, so you can fill in the blank. Just a little interactive piece tonight. True joy and purpose are found when you embrace your role in God's story. There's nothing worse. I wasn't in theater when I was in school. My mom always told me I should have been. Maybe I missed my calling, but there's nothing worse I can imagine than you going through a whole play, a whole production, only to find out at the end you played the wrong part and you said the wrong lines over and over and over again, even though people were nudging you. They're like pulling on your wardrobe during the play, like, you got the wrong line. Again, come on. There's nothing worse than that. 
There's nothing worse than being on an athletic team and playing offensive line when you're the quarterback. Right? That would go bad, right? I think. There's nothing worse than, than being uh, in a band. Uh, I'm also not a musician, but I can tell good music when I hear it. And, and if you are a drummer and you're actually playing the guitar and you've never picked up or never seen a guitar, you're playing the wrong part. And so for us, to understand the Bible means that we will understand our role. We will understand our place. And the first thing, as I kind of said in that funny introduction about movies and mountains, we're not the point. It's not about us. It's about something bigger than us, and that's what the Bible tells us. Well, last week, Brad introduced an idea that might have been new for you. He said that the main thread throughout the Bible is redemption. And how many of you do not know what the word redemption is? Be bold and raise your hand. Redemption, to redeem, right? It means to to buy back, it means to get back, it means to restore, it means to remake, it means to, to make new, to make better. So when you redeem something, it's like if you're going to redeem an old car, you fix it up and you make it beautiful, you make it perfect. Well, then you ask, how does God redeem mankind? How does he redeem the world? How can he redeem me? Well, he has a method. God isn't unorganized, and he, his method is simple. It's called his kingdom. God accomplishes redemption through his kingdom. Well, what's God's kingdom? Here's a pretty simple definition. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's God's kingdom. Think about it. Think about a kingdom. The the kingdom that you are probably most familiar with, um, even though you don't think in these terms, is the United States. The United States is a, is a modern kingdom, right? We have a, a people, right? What are we called? Go ahead, you know it. Americans, right? We have a place. What is it called? America, right? We have, <clears throat> we have people that rule over us, not always kindly, not always lovingly, but we do have imperfect rule. And we have imperfect blessing that if you obey the rules and you obey the laws, for the most part, you'll have a nice life, right? That's, it's a kingdom, even though... We're not ruled by a king who, you know, sends out ships to go conquer other parts of the world, right? But we, we have these in our world. We, we understand kingdom. And the people back then understood kingdom. And so God, in his great wisdom, decided, I'm going to accomplish redemption through the kingdom. I made people to understand that. I'm going to make them understand a kingdom. So that's how, God, that's how God chose to do it. He chose to do it through a kingdom. So that brings us to Adam and Eve. Most of you know Adam and Eve, first people that God created, the first people that ever inhabited the world. God creates Adam and Eve. You can read about it in Genesis 1-2. We're going to do just like fly through, so we're not going to get into a, a ton of specifics, and I, we will get to some passages. But. So God creates Adam and Eve, and the Garden of Eden is like this garden kingdom. Why is it a garden kingdom? Because there are a people. There's Adam and Eve. There's a place, there's, there's a garden, and there's God's rule and blessing. He rules over them kindly, and what does he do? He gives them one rule, don't eat from the tree in the middle, and if you obey me, you will be blessed. So there's, there's our little kingdom, this little garden kingdom, and it's a perfect kingdom. There's nothing wrong, but what happens? They break the rule, right? They have one rule, one, just one, 
and they can't follow it. And I know what everybody in the room is thinking. They're thinking, well, if I was there, I would have kept the rule. I would have succeeded. No, you would not have. You wouldn't have. And I wouldn't have. Adam and Eve showed we can't, we can't follow the rules. We can't do what God wants us to do. So in this kingdom, this kingdom fails. And then what God does, and write this passage down, Genesis 3.15. He gives them hope. They deserve to die because they broke the one rule. And God says, no, I will send an offspring. I will send a descendant of the woman, of Eve. And you know what this offspring will do? He will crush the serpent that tempted you, Adam and Eve. He will kill this serpent. So there's this promise of, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to crush you. I will send a redeemer for you. Well, over time, Eve has a child, and there are other children born, and there is no redeemer born yet. God is committed to his creation. Creation goes pretty bad, right? There's a flood in there, and God judges people and everybody dies in the flood except for one family. And then out of that family, eventually comes a man named Abraham. God is so committed to his creation that has gone bad that he comes to Abraham. His name is Abram at the time. And Abram doesn't worship God. Abram doesn't love God. Abram actually has parents that worship other gods. They made up their own gods. And God comes to Abram and he says, I want to make a nation out of you, Abram. I want you to leave this place, and I want you to go to a place that I will show you. And we're actually going to skip over. I have it on the slides, but we're going to skip over Genesis 12 because we're short on time. But write down Genesis 12, 1 through 3, so you can go and read that. If there's one passage to know, know that one. Because that passage sets the tone for the rest of the Bible. I hope you heard that. Everybody look at me, even you guys in the back, back there. That passage sets the tone for the whole Bible. You know that passage? You will understand how the Bible works. God makes this, pro- this promise to Abram. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will give you land. And I will bless all peoples through you. So God isn't just about Jewish people. He's about all people. And that's, what, that's the promise he makes to Abraham. Well, Abraham's people start to grow. Like, there becomes quite a bit of them. And they find themselves in Egypt hundreds of years later, and eventually they become slaves in Egypt. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with that. They become slaves. And God raises up a man to deliver them. He raises up a rescuer. And that man is called Moses. And what Moses does is he goes to the people of Israel. He says, I am here because God has sent me and I'm going to rescue you from slavery. You, you, you're slaves in Egypt. This isn't your land. This isn't your home. This is not what God promised our father Abraham. Right? Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had father. Yeah, that's the only time you'll hear me sing. That's where that comes from, Right? Abraham started a nation, and this nation grew, and they weren't in their own home. And so God leads them out of Egypt in what's called the Exodus. The Exodus means to go out of. And once they leave Egypt in this Exodus, God takes them to a mountain called Mount Sinai, and he gives them what's called the law. 
And I, I'm willing to bet most of you in here are probably wondering, if, you, if there's anything you want to know about the Bible, it's why are there so many laws, right? Who wants to know that? Why are there so many laws? Why are there laws? Brad mentioned a law last week about shellfish. What is that all about? Like, why can't I wear cotton and polyester? Well, nobody should do that, but it's a law, right? You know, on the same day at the same time. So there's all these laws, but I'm just going to read just a short, like two or three sentences about why God gave Israel so many laws. It's very important to know. And so I hope, listen, I hope you listen. God had not sent Jesus yet to fully reveal what this exodus was about. Therefore, it required the most detailed explanation of what it meant to live as a redeemed people. Israel needed to be rigorously tutored in holy living. They needed to be rigorously tutored in holy living. Because the Exodus pointed to something greater that Brad will talk about next week. The fact that we get delivered from the slavery of sin and death and Satan and get brought to God, to Jesus. They didn't understand that. Jesus hadn't been sent yet. He hadn't been born yet. And so they need to understand, what does it mean to be rescued by a perfect God? It means you be perfect, as I'm perfect. And I'm going to give you 613, you can count them, 613 laws to show you what a redeemed life looks like. And if they were to obey those laws, they would be blessed. If they didn't, they would be cursed. As time went on, as we'll find out, God's people didn't obey those laws and they were cursed. Eventually, Joshua leads them into the promised land. They're, They're coming to the end of what they think is their story. They get into this land. We know it as Palestine today or, or Israel. I mean, that's, that's the land. And so they come into their home. But as they're in their home, they continually disobey. And, and they disobey in one way. They say, we want a king. Well, who wouldn't want a king? It's a kingdom. Well, God was their king. But they say, we want a human king. And so God gives them a king. It went bad the first time with Saul. But the second king was a very good king for the most part. His name was David, and all kings after him were judged by his standard. And so David becomes king, and God makes promises to rule through a human king, through David, through David's son. So turn to 2 Samuel 7, and I'm going to read this passage. If there's another passage you need to know, it's this passage. So you need to know the Abraham passage, and then you need to know this passage. I'm going to pick it up in verse um, 12. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are over, David, and you rest or you sleep, you sleep with your fathers, you're, you know, you're dead, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And this word house here means dynasty, meaning he's going to build a kingdom that's never going to end. I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. I'll stop there. You can read the rest of it later. So what God promises is a kingdom. He picks up on Abraham's promise, the the promise to Abraham. He says, I'm going to build for you a nation. 
David, I'm going to raise up for you a king. And then earlier in the passage, God told David, I'm going to give you a land that you will rest in forever. It will be peace for my people. They will finally have a land of their own that they can dwell securely in. Who wouldn't want that? We kind of have that here in America, right? We're pretty secure. And that's what Israel wanted too. They wanted the same thing. And so God picks up this promise. He's making this promise. I'm going to give you a king, a forever kingdom. David, you're going to die. And you still need a king. You need a king to come from you. And so God promises that to David. The sad, the sad part is that none of David's sons fulfill this promise. Not one of them. King after king after king after king are terrible. There's a couple exceptions. There's a couple good ones. But even they die. These kings die. And they don't do what God tells them to do. And the people don't do what God tells them to do. So during the, t- the time, what we call the monarchy, right? Monarchs, kings, go Papillion, right? I graduated from Papillion. The monarchs, what a terrible name. So the monarchs, the monarchy is failed. And it makes the, the covenant with David seem to have failed. And in the Psalms, there's a Psalm about this. Psalm 89, 38 through 39. It's on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But the people in Israel would sing this during worship because they would pray for God to give them their king back. We, we want a king. We know, God, that you promised this king. We know that you did. So here's what God says, uh, what the people say to God. Psalm 89, 38 through 39. But you have rejected. You have spurned. You have been very angry with your anointed one. The anointed one is another term for king. You have renounced the covenant or the promise with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. So what we get a picture of is like God like stomping like this crown. Like it's not going to happen. And these people are like, why? You promised us a king. And it's not happening. Why not? Please, God, please, please. And so then, then the prophets come on the scene. And let me be honest. If there is a, there's not a scarier bunch of people in the Bible than the prophets, man, calling people whores, like, how, it's scary. It's scary stuff. They're saying God is going to rain locusts and fire on you if you don't repent. They're a scary bunch. So they do two things. They promise judgment. They say, God's going to judge you. And then what does God do? He does. What happens is something that's called the exile. And that's what most of the prophets are about. God's people haven't obeyed. The covenant with David seems to have failed. And God's people leave their land. They get booted out and they have to go to another country called Babylon. They haven't been faithful, so they can't stay in God's kingdom. They have to leave. They have to. That's, that's the rule. That's the curse. But the prophets also promise something else, something better. They say, there's hope. Oh, there's hope. There's a king who's coming. And not only a king, but in the prophets, this idea develops, this concept develops that there's a king and there's a redeemer who's one person. He's a king and he's a Messiah. He's an anointed one. He's anointed to do what God has called him to do, to redeem. And Israel waits 
and they wait and they wait. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6 is an example of this promise. Look at what Jeremiah says. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Who's God keeping his promise to? David. Crazy. So you're telling me in Jeremiah, which I don't know if you know, but it's, on, it's past the middle, God is going back to David, and then which points us back to Abraham. I will raise up a righteous branch for David, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. You're coming back to the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety This is the name by which he is called. Interesting. The Lord is our righteousness. That's his name. So there's a king who's coming. And years go by. 400 years go by after the prophets. And God doesn't say a word to anybody. Nothing. And they hope. They wait. They wait. When is our king coming? He's waiting. He's not coming. But we know there's a hope because our God told us. He's the God who made the world. There's a hope. There's, there's a king and there's a, there's a redeemer who's one man. And he's coming for us. So some of you are thinking, why does this matter? Why does it matter to me? Whether or not this story is true. Whether you're dealing with suicide or a friend who's suicidal or parents who argue or a breakup or bad grades, body pain, car accidents, health, divorce, whatever it is that's in your life, you're longing for a true story. You're longing for the same thing those people were longing for 2,000, 4,000 years ago. You're longing for a king who will rule you kindly, take you to himself, put you in the right place so you can be his people. You're longing for a true story because there is a true story that does exist. There's a true story that exists and we are all looking for it. And so often we write our own stories. And when we write our own story, We don't have the power to carry it out. We were created, right? Like, there was a time when I didn't exist. There was a time when you didn't exist. You don't have the power to write your own story. You have no authority. You have not one bit of authority to write your own story. Can I say it another time in a different way? You don't have the authority to write your own story. So when you long for something better, When you long for something more joyous and more purposeful, you are actually longing for something that only God can do because he will put you in the story. So Israel's history is not just Israel's history, it's my history. They're my family. And if you're a Christian, they're your family. Brad will get into that more next week. He'll talk about how Jesus is the final climax of this story and that he brings all of these promises together. And that there's nothing left after him. He's the climax to the story. Two other things that just might help you as you read the Bible. 
when you read the Bible, work hard to figure out, where am I at in the story? Do some, do some reading. Like when you sit down in the, in the morning, you might have to read more than the, in between the headings. You just might have to read more. So work hard to figure out where I'm at in the story so that you don't just kind of take a verse and then say, well, this must be God's word to me today because it might not have anything to do with your situation. So work hard to figure out, where am I at in the story? Am I, am I around Abraham, am I around David, Moses, prophets? Where am I at? And then that's the third thing, or really the second thing to think about when you're reading the Bible. Ask yourself two questions. I have them printed out so you can just listen. First, ask, what, reflex, what reflections of redemption do I see in this passage? Every section, whether it's five chapters or a whole book, reflects something of redemption. There's some brokenness that needs to be fixed, and there's some way that God fixes it. And that points to the greater redemption in Christ. And then the second thing, ask, how is God's kingdom represented in this context, in this passage? Ask, where's God's people, God's place, and God's rule and blessing? Because it's not always Israel in the promised land in, uh, under God's rule and blessing. So ask yourself, where do I see a kingdom here? How's the kingdom working? And how is it broken? And how does it need to be fixed? And with what I know about Jesus, how does, he, how does he fix it? Let me pray. Actually, before I pray, just a quick thing. If you're new, um, we go to life groups after this. You can go with the person that you came with. Or if you don't have a group, maybe you came in alone tonight. Um, come and talk to me or Brad. He'll be up here too. But after this, we'll go, we'll go to our group. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for the story. We, didn't, we couldn't even touch everything, God. We, we barely broke the surface. But we thank you that you're a good king and that you started the story and really this message is incomplete. I mean, it's, it's not finished. And we thank you that, uh, Lord willing, we can come back next week and Brad can finish the story for us. God, help us to think hard about these things and help our hearts to be melted by the fact that you're the only true story maker and every other story is a copy of yours or an opposition to yours. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.